Chris Milligan recently spoke with James Norman about Fostergate, high-level corruption in the U.S. government, including spying on banks by the National Security Agency and the selling of state secrets. This is part two of their conversation, episode 73. Now, Orland Graby at that time had set up, I think for this purpose of promoting this story, what was called the homepage of J. Orland Graby. It was a kind of a bare bones uh, webpage, but it was actually uh, became the model for Matt Drudge. When Matt Drudge came on, he basically copied Orland's style, everything, you know, the, the periodic daily updates, a new page with uh, all kinds of a collection of stuff from the mainstream media, and a lot of non-mainstream stuff that was really interesting. But so Orland launched himself on a relentless, virtually daily routine of publishing updates on this story and, and using this Fostergate story as a kind of a Christmas tree on which he could hang a whole bunch of ornaments of his own research and thinking uh, that explicated so many elements of this whole murky, shadowy government spying industry. And he, he went into it in very entertaining and very informative detail. Hayes would, I think, be feeding him some of the stuff, but I don't think Orland ever used Hayes as a source for much, certainly not at the beginning. Eventually, I think he might have. But Orland had his own sources that were corroborating much of this stuff about Foster in Washington, how apoplectic the intelligence community had become, because Foster, it wasn't just his own greed. I mean, he was selling secrets right out of the White House, basically. And they were heavy duty stuff. He was the NSA liaison to the White House. He was the point man at the White House for what became known as the Clipper Chip Project, which was an ambitious effort by the government to basically monopolize all telephonic encryption systems, make everything go through these Clipper Chip things that AT&T had developed that, that ultimately failed. But Foster was there handling other stuff for the NSA, which could have included nuclear weapons codes, which change every day and get handled through the White House, a blue binder coming from the NSA. Here's the codes for the day, folks, da, 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 da. It was reported that when Foster died, there were two mysterious binders in his office, one blue, one white from the NSA. Uh, apparently a bunch of systematic stuff that was filtering through his office in connection with Webster Hubble. Hubble had also been a, a lawyer at the Rose Law Firm. He had gone to the Justice Department when Clinton was elected. He was neck deep in all this stuff too, as was Hillary Clinton, the first lady who was uh, dealing with Foster all the time. And according to my sources, Hillary was under investigation for getting possibly a piece of the action off of Foster's account, which makes sense because Foster became what amounted to a bag man for the Clintons. The Clintons went to Washington without a lot of money in their pocket. And running for president back then was very expensive. I think their disclosed spending was maybe $500 million. The real spending was probably well over a billion. They had to make that up some way. And the first thing they did when they got to Washington was start selling everything that wasn't nailed down. And, and this was partly what Hayes and the fifth column were after this rampant 
sieve-like uh, wholesale merchandising of state secrets that had taken root in Washington all over the place. It wasn't just selling influence. It wasn't just penny any bribery. This was big deal stuff. And what made the story particularly sensitive was that the main buyer of this stuff would have been the state of Israel. This is what they do. They spy. <laughs> Everybody spies. But the Israelis are better at it than others. They had more money generated for them by their financial banking system. So the Israelis were a ready market for this stuff. And Hayes and Fifth Comet actually tracked payments into Foster's account from various Israeli banks. But I think the Chinese were buying the stuff too. Uh, the Israelis were reselling it all over the place. We suspected, and I think it's true, that through Foster or other sources, the Israelis had actually become a virtual nuclear power at that time, at a time before they had their own satellite systems and could accurately target uh, nuclear targets. Jonathan Pollard, for instance, working for Israeli intelligence, had been able to download uh, nuclear targeting data from the Livermore labs in California, mainly using again, bugged promise software that had been sold to Livermore for outrageous overpriced numbers by Robert Maxwell. So by combining target data with Israel's own nascent nuclear missile capability, it made them theoretically the first third world uh, nuclear power. But it was worse than that because if the Israelis had been able to actually get the ability to launch US missiles, they would have had blackmail capability over the entire world. <laughs> the Russians, the US, everybody. And without ever firing a missile themselves, theoretically, they would have been in a position to call the shots. Whether that actually happened or not, I don't know, but it was certainly a theoretical possibility. And that's what made the Foster thing very high stakes. I mean, this, this, he was not just selling um, uh, used pencils and stuff out of his desk. This was serious national security stuff. And what would particularly put the uh, counterintelligence people on to foster was that the uh, company called E-Systems out of Dallas, uh, it was later acquired by Raytheon, a significant electronic warfare contractor that was involved in generating the uh, PSYOP, the um, Integrated Operating Plan for Nuclear War. And they also uh, had just come up with a, a, a new computer system that was gonna manage all that stuff. About a month after they did, it showed up in Israeli hands. And so the suspicion was, was Foster involved in that some way or other? Now, the death of Vince Foster had been covered up from the get-go and the government went into a full court press to dismiss it as just an unfortunate suicide by a depressed uh, a White House lawyer. It was much, much more than that. And you can tell by the squirming that the government did to cover up the story that there was something more going on here. The press never really got the story straight, though. I mean, there were reporters like Chris Ruddy at the New York Post, later at Pittsburgh Tribune Review, and various other reporters who had various theories about it, you know, and most of them were arguing about the trivialities about it. Nobody could really ask the question, why did he die? 
so this story that I wrote was the first one that actually came up with the guts of the story. And so Orlin, me, Hayes, everybody with it was demonized. Forbes, basically, after I got the story published, they said, we don't want you working on the story anymore. Take a buyout or you're, or you're gone. So I took a buyout and I left. And that's when I kind of became a reluctant uh, hot potato late night talk show celebrity for about a year there in the late 95 early 96 orlin was out there dropping bombs every day on his web page and he was kicking ass i mean he you you're right i mean people were riveted to this thing but you know i i kind of actually in in retrospect i can see where there's a great similarity here between what we were doing back then and the whole Q phenomenon that surrounded uh, uh, Donald Trump going into his election. In a sense, there were similar ingredients to it. You have a mysterious intelligence community source who's dropping cryptic crumbs all over the place. And then you have other Anons, as it were, chiming in, trying to make sense of them. Jim, and, real, real quick, it seems like you're saying Foster was selling those state secrets kind of on behalf of the Clintons. Is that sort of true yes i think that was the suspicion that uh, thank you and it also wasn't then just foster who was benefiting from it he he was moving the money for for other purposes i think your your foster gate story that had that effect points the finger at whom taking out foster well there emerged various tidbits of information about that the initial story we had it was that it would have been a Mossad team that was involved whether they actually killed him or not, we don't know. But there was a uh, three men and a woman of Mossad who were photographically surveilled in Foster's Washington apartment the afternoon he died. So clearly they were in there either looking for something or cleaning up the mess. The idea that Foster died in Forest Marcy Park, I think everybody realized that's a cover story. It just didn't make sense. Why would the Mossad take him out if Israel was the major, uh, a main customer of the state secrets? God, it Israel was getting was at messy. Great risk of being exposed here. Yeah, uh, and uh, so they had, they had a lot to cover up. the The U.S. intelligence community had a lot to cover up, and the the U.S. CIA and the Mossad were like this. I mean, they they were rivals in some ways. But you broke up a little. You broke up a little. Who was like this? The CIA. And the mod were teamed up on many, many projects. They were on the same page. Whether the Mossad did this at the behest of U.S. interests, we don't know. But there were also some FBI types who were bragging afterwards. There was a guy named Robert Getzman who was quoted as having said, yeah, we did him. We killed him because he went entrepreneurial on us, meaning to say. He was selling stuff. <laughs> and uh, now whether Getzman actually was involved in it or he was just trying to claim credit uh, vicariously, no, none of this stuff ever got pursued very well. Supposedly, the uh, Kenneth Starr Whitewater investigation was given the uh, portfolio to examine all this, which I think they did, and they buried it. They never let it come out. Instead, Clinton ended up being impeached on this Monica Lewinsky stuff. None of the real reasons for this, but the impeachment ever really came out. 
and uh, Brett Kavanaugh, one of Starr's investigators, now a Supreme Court justice, was actually involved in belittling, humiliating, and browbeating one of the key witnesses who had serious evidence questioning the whole Fort Marcy Park angle of uh, Foster's death. So, I mean, the cover-up is, it, was, it, it became palpably obvious that it was pervasive and it was throughout the high levels of the government and no journalist was gonna penetrate that wall. So right. I carried on, I did what I could. Orland did everything he could. Hayes was warning us it's going to get nasty. And toward the end of 1996, the FBI set up a, uh, a bogus busting of Hayes. He got arrested, supposedly put a contract on his own son for a paltry $5,000 or something like that. The case made no sense. Uh, he was put on trial in London, Kentucky by a Clinton-appointed uh, federal judge who supposedly Clinton had an affair with. The trial was a, it was a kangaroo court. Hayes actually provided significant on the record sworn testimony to what he had been talking about to us all the time. But the, the FBI you know, managed to uh, muddy up the case so that the jury ended up not believing Hayes actually worked for the CIA or anything. And Hayes didn't have the best legal counsel. It was a tragedy. Hayes went to prison for like 10 years uh, there was an appeal, went nowhere. The whole judicial system was racked against him. The government came down on him like a ton of bricks. And I was unemployed and I decided to go to work for Platt's Oilgram, which I had been familiar with for my business weekdays, writing about the oil business again. I had to make a living. So I went to do that. Orlin moved on. He, he kind of wrapped up his series and uh, started focusing on his own digital banking system. It was like an early kind of Bitcoin process that he had used, basically using cryptology to create digital money. Had his own bank. He moved to Costa Rica. Was actually living in the former Russian ambassador's residence there, I think. Orlin was not in great health. He had suffered from chronic uh, congestive heart failure. And in 2008, he died there in Costa Rica, I think of natural causes. Hayes remained in prison from 1996, I guess, until I think he was in prison 12 or 14 years, something like that. They kept expanding his term. He finally got out. He died in uh, 2019 in a nursing home in Kentucky. I had tried to contact him sometimes after he got out, but never got a reply, I think because the terms of his release said that he was never supposed to talk to Jim Norman again. So, so you're, the, you're the one left to tell the tale, eh? Yeah, yeah, I guess. But it's a sad tale. I mean, basically the good guy's lost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I've thought about this long and hard and it was not for naught. No. I think that the way God works, he gives lots of warnings, gives people and nations opportunity to change their ways, gives them many, many warnings, and patiently tries to get them to change their ways. And so this was, this, this was by four upside the head of the U.S. government, and they just ignored it. They went on, as they did with 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> this country has just gotten more and more corrupt unmanageable and 
not to get too religious on you, but I tell you, there's a judgment day coming somehow or other. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. And uh, Orland Gravy and Charles Hayes and Jim Norman will be vindicated somehow. I don't know when, I don't know how. Orland's last name, but how, I, do you, how do you spell his last name? It's G-R-A-B-B-E. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Now, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Clintons didn't do this by themselves. You know, uh, there was a guy by the name of uh, George H.W. Bush, who was vice president under Reagan, who helped set up Jackson Stevens there in, uh, you know, in Arkansas, uh, uh, especially uh, with the drug trade, because that's one thing that he was doing as vice president was consolidating these various uh, drug trades that had, that had opened <clears throat> up because, you know, well, that, that's true. I mean, this was a bipartisan effort all over the place. Yeah, uh, it, it, this is not a Democrat Republican issue at all. Right. And I mean, it, it goes way back. It goes way up the line. And one of the things Hayes and the Fifth Column was very careful about was that it was going to deliver these packets on a equal opportunity basis. Wherever the bad guys were, they were going to get a packet. There was a, an equal balance, roughly, of Democrats and Republicans who left office. I mean, these were really big names. Right. Yeah. Sam Nunn, Bill Bradley, Claiborne Pell, John, uh, Bob Dole. Actually, while he was running for president against Clinton, he resigned from the Senate and didn't have to, left the office in tears that day just because, so his defeat was basically a rigged it was a suicidal effort just to get him out of government. Uh, but Bill Clinton, yeah, he was a creation of a much bigger enterprise that has persisted to this day. I mean, what I've become very cynical, angry, cynical and angry about <laughs> is that Clinton, most virtually all of our presidents, except Donald Trump, and I'm not sure about him, since since Reagan or before, have basically been creations of the intelligence community. Bill Clinton was recruited by Cord Meyer in London to the CIA when Clinton was uh, in school there in London, made various trips behind the Iron Curtain. That's where he got his ticket punched working for the company. So the, there was Clinton, then there was uh, George W. Bush behind him, who is the son of George H. W. Bush. The Bush family's neck deep in all of this stuff. And Obama, Mr. Obama, his parents were deep CIA. Probably the big source of his personal wealth, which is considerable, uh, was his Indonesian father, who was basically a CIA death squad runner, with a, nominally working for ESO in Indonesia during the, you know, rubbing out the Chinese people like that. So, yeah, but uh, there's no question about Obama being able to run for president. Okay, that's just. I, I'm sure Obama could run for president because his true biological father was an American. I believe this fellow Frank Marshall Davis out of Chicago, who was a black poet who was supposedly the poet laureate for the Chicago communist underground back in the 50s. Right. Now, Trump comes out of this milieu too. He's just a guy, you know, a lot of times they don't uh, have to put their hand directly on their shoulder. Uh, they play him into position. Okay. Oh, yeah. and, I think and, that's true. As true. In fact, I think that the uh, close relationship between Trump and Rudolph Giuliani really goes back to uh, the takedown of the uh, mafia crime families in New York back in the uh, 70s and 80s, the 80s, really. In fact, 
I got to know Donald Trump very well when I was at Business Week. I wrote the first uh, big deal business magazine cover story on Trump in 87. Spent a lot of time with him, went around, liked the guy. He was, he was friendly, he was smart. And I could never quite understand, though, how somebody could move seamlessly between New York construction, the airline business, Atlantic City casinos, and... Uh, uh, Miss America pageant and all this other stuff and not get mud on his shoes. I think the reason is because Giuliani and the Justice Department were basically using him as a front to gather string on mafia activities. And I think that's where Donald Trump got his ticket punched. Right. And and it, it, it explains a lot. Right. And basically the, the, the mafia is one. <laughs> you know, we, we live in a criminal planet. Okay. And they create these huge, huge uh, amounts of money, huge slush funds, which enable them to, uh, you know, blackmail people and, and uh, get into uh, positions. And yeah, and the mafia, it's hard to draw a line between the mafia and the intelligence community, really. I mean, and, and the uh, secret societies, okay? And the yeah, secret that, societies. <laughs> that too, I guess. You know, yeah. That, yeah that's your neck of the woods. I, I have never really gotten into that, that area so much. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't have, but, you know, but my dad, my daddy told me some things and, you know, I, I so I've been looking at them and, and, you know, it, it is, they, they, they do converge and then they, uh, you know, create these, excuse my language, uh, bullshit narratives to enmesh us all into this uh, silly game that they're playing. And I wish, you know, they would just tell the truth. Okay. And Mr. Norman, I, I really appreciate this class that you have given us today on our history. And this is- The forgotten history, I must say. <laughs> the buried history. Yes. You know? I mean, this isn't just forgotten. There's, there's been active people that have been throwing uh, shovels of dirt on this to, to bury this story forever. And right. I really appreciate you coming out. Uh, Jim, Thanks you, for letting me uh, vent. <laughs> Yeah. You, you have any uh, last uh, words or, or things you want to say? Only that uh, I like to think that there are still some good guys in the government who are still trying to pursue this stuff. I think you're seeing actually a large number of uh, curious departures from government these days. And, you know, maybe there are sound political reasons for that. But I think that uh, the surveillance state has tremendous enforcement capability to weed out people they don't like in the government. And you'll be seeing that um, more and more, whether it's applied justly or not, I don't know. But uh, it's become, I think, a routine element of uh, governance in this country. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, we really didn't uh, discuss your, your book, The Oil Card, which is very important too. And hopefully we can get you on another time to speak about that. But I really wanted to talk about Fostergate because, like I say, um, so many people have, have never even heard about it and, uh, and, and, and really don't understand the depth and breadth of it. And you're Jim, the person to tell the tale. Where could one online find... The, the latest, greatest version of Fostergate? Is that the title of one published piece or is it generally talking about the story? Fostergate was the original story I wrote, which ran in Media Bypass, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, actually, it's very hard to find any of this stuff online anywhere. I don't know if you could even find the Fostergate story online. Orland's writings 
if you go to the Wayback Machine and put in um, homepage of J. Olin Gravy, you might. Yeah, I mirrored, mirrored it at one time, but I don't think that's up anymore. It's been too many dang. Yeah, I've, I've been trying to uh, save as much of this stuff as I can because it's, it, it's disappeared off the internet. They, they don't want this stuff around. There's a lot of people in Washington who know exactly what went on and they're not talking. Well, they can't because it's just too damning of everybody there. No, no, no. We need to know the truth. We need to have, uh, you know, our government run right. We need to get rid of this corruption. And I'm tired of it all. But, you know, Lord have mercy. I, I want to thank you again, Jim, for coming on and onwards to a better world. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, thank Bruce. You. Thank you.